National Trust Magazine, Summer 2021. Hello, and welcome to the summer issue of National Trust Magazine. I'm Sally Palmer, editor of the magazine, and I'll be taking you through some of the highlights, including news, features, and letters from our members. The outdoor spaces near my home have become very familiar over the past year. As summer arrives and the days grow warmer, I'm looking forward to the simple joys of hearing the birds and watching the green creep back over my favourite haunts, and perhaps at last being able to share some of them with a few friends and family. Many of you have written in to share the pleasure you've taken in your own outdoor spaces this year, whether that's a walk, a local park or a trust place. In Escape into a Garden, author Rebecca Bevan shares how to identify the elusive spirit of a garden and bring it to life for yourself. And in Escaping into Nature, three members and volunteers explain how they've found solace in everyday nature. Meanwhile, the teams looking after trust properties are busily preparing to welcome visitors back, some in a slightly different way as a result of the pandemic. Find out more in our Small Wonders feature. Here's Olivia Vinnell, Neka Okoya and Glenn McCready to tell you about what's been happening around the Trust. The Trust has developed a new map to illustrate the threat posed by climate change to some of our most significant cultural sites and help identify actions to tackle it. The map plots places against existing data to show how potential risks, such as flooding and coastal erosion, could change by 2060 in a worst-case scenario. It pinpoints locations so we can consider our options in a timely manner. Assuming no major change to emissions before 2060, the number of national trust sites at high or medium risk of climate-related hazards could increase from 30% in 2020 to 71% in 2060, out of a total 67,426 sites. Harry Bowell, Director for Land and Nature, says... This map is a game-changer in how we face the threat climate change poses to the places we care for. By acting now and working with nature, we can adapt to many of these risks. Work is already underway, including tree planting at Lyme in Cheshire to reduce the risk of flooding and the use of plants resilient to high temperatures at Ham House, London. Find the interactive map at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash climate dash map. Recent radiocarbon dating at Chedworth Roman Villa in Gloucestershire has shown a mosaic in room 28 was designed and created in the mid-5th century, much later than was believed to have been the case. The discovery provides evidence for a slower cultural decline than previously thought during the so-called Dark Ages following the fall of the Roman Empire. Until now, it was generally believed that following the economic crash of the 4th century, Towns and villas were largely abandoned and fell into decay within a few years. National Trust archaeologist Martin Papworth says, The 5th century marks the beginning of the sub-Roman period. It was thought that, as production declined, crafts and service industries became unsustainable. The administrative system broke down into local fiefdoms, and most of the population turned to subsistence farming. However, the creation of a new room and the laying of a new floor at Chedworth suggests wealth, as well as a mosaic industry continuing 50 years later than expected. The mosaic has an intricate design with gearish braided bands filled with flowers and knots, but is of poorer quality than those dating to the late 4th century, suggesting mosaicists had become less skilled. 
It has now been reburied, along with other mosaics, to protect it from the weather. But there are photographs and a 3D video online at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Chedworth dash Roman dash Villa. A new approach to sustainable pest management is being trialled at Blickling Hall in Norfolk to combat the threat of clothes moths to precious items in one of the Trust's most significant collections in what's believed to be a first for a heritage setting. Common or webbing clothes moths have proved hard to control at Blickling, despite vigilant housekeeping and preventive measures, and the relative peace and quiet of lockdown has worsened the problem. The biological control method uses a microscopic parasitoid wasp and moth pheromones alongside existing measures to disrupt the life cycle of the moths and vastly reduce their population. It's helping safeguard treasures such as the Peter the Great Tapestry, gifted by Catherine the Great to owner John, 2nd Earl of Buckinghamshire in the 1760s. Assistant National Conservator Hilary Jarvis explains, We are hoping this pioneering approach will provide a sustainable method that any of our properties can use to deal with serious infestations. The Trust's annual pest review shows that insect pests rose 11% in 2020, a record 173 properties recorded more than 62,000 insects in 6,800 traps. The Trust hopes to present the trial results at a virtual conference in September. The Trust welcomed the Charity Commission's conclusions in March that there are no grounds for regulatory action against us. These follow complaints the Commission received about the report we published last September into historic colonialism and slavery links at the places we care for. Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director-General, says, We have listened and considered the many responses and been reminded that researching history and sharing it can stir up strong feelings and views. The Trust must continue to take a wide-ranging and evidence-based approach to history. Find out more at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash charity dash commission. The Little Tern Colony at Blakeney Point in Norfolk had its most successful breeding season for 25 years last summer. Rangers counted 154 pairs of little terns, which fledged 201 chicks, in a boost for the seabird, which has been declining nationally since the 1980s. Fewer than 2,000 pairs are now left in the UK. National Trust Countryside Manager Chris Bealby says, Blakeney Point is part of a network of nesting sites for terns, and plays a vital role in their survival. Little terns are still very much at risk, but for now, it's rewarding to see so many fledging the nest. We're looking forward to welcoming you to this year's AGM. Due to the changing coronavirus situation, we are still considering the venue for the meeting. It is possible that due to government restrictions, attendance in person may be limited. For this reason, we're also offering the option for members to attend online. Whether you join us online or in person, you'll be able to hear from your chair, Tim Parker, and Director-General Hilary McGrady. Attendees will also have the opportunity to ask questions and participate by voting on any resolutions taken during proceedings. More information, along with details on how to vote in this year's council elections and on any resolutions, will be published with the next issue of this magazine and on the Trust's website in early September at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash AGM. You can also call the AGM team on 01793 817 663. 
The National Trust's 2020-2021 annual report will be published online in the autumn. You'll find it at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash features forward slash annual dash reports. At the upcoming AGM, the Board of Trustees will be seeking members' agreement to modernise the way the Trust runs general meetings. The resolution will also include adapting the way we distribute meeting information and voting papers for resolutions and council elections. The proposed changes would mean we could conduct aspects of the AGM online, as well as in the room, making it easier for more members to take part. Members would also be able to vote in real time on resolutions without needing to travel and attend in person. Currently, only a small percentage of members attend the AGM or vote on resolutions and in elections. Under current rules, we are required to post paper copies of the AGM information and voting papers to all members, which is a significant financial and environmental cost. The proposed changes will mean we could provide the papers digitally, with the ability for members to opt in to receive them by post. We're proposing these changes now because it is very important to us that all our members feel fully able to participate in the AGM and help shape the future of the Trust. Full details about the resolution will accompany the next issue of this magazine. And those were some of the highlights from the Summer News. Our next feature is from the Director-General. Your chance to hear from Hilary McGrady. Life always has its pressures, but these pressures have felt even more acute since coronavirus swept into our lives. Many people have faced and continue to face financial pressures, mental health pressures exacerbated by isolation and loneliness, and the pressure of balancing the demands of work with family needs such as homeschooling. There's a sense of disappointment that a holiday abroad may remain out of reach for some time to come. But perhaps amidst this disappointment, there's room to rediscover joys that are closer to home and to remind ourselves that escaping doesn't have to involve a passport and a cabin bag. One such joy is the garden. Throughout the lockdowns, many people have begun to garden or have rekindled an interest in gardening. Even those with just a small space, a few pots or a window box. I am delighted that our new book, the National Trust School of Gardening will help people to create and improve their own green space, whether they want to design a garden from scratch, learn how to compost or garden more sustainably. Of course, visiting your nearest trust garden can also provide a wonderful sense of escape. The sight of a cascading wisteria, the sound of bees foraging among blossom and the sense of a flower border all connect us to the natural world and root our minds and bodies in the present. Some of our gardens, such as Acorn Bank in Cumbria, Tregwenton in Cornwall and Peckover in Cambridgeshire, include a silent space where you're encouraged to switch off your phone, pause your conversation and escape into a moment of peace. For some, the coast is the ultimate escape. The wide skies and power of the ocean bring an invigorating new perspective on everyday life. It is more than 50 years since the Trust began protecting landscapes, such as Whiteford Burrows on the Gower Peninsula in South Wales, through the Neptune Coastline Campaign. We're still committed to securing coastline for everyone to enjoy. As Sandylands, the Trust's first piece of coastland in Lincolnshire, 
we're working hard to make this former golf course a place where nature and people can thrive. Taking care of places like Whiteford and Sandylands doesn't only protect their natural beauty, it also delivers huge benefits for the nation's mental well-being. Last June, over two-thirds of you told us that spending time in nature had helped you feel happier during lockdown. Trust Places have helped maintain our health and well-being throughout this crisis. It's inspiring that our teams take such care of these natural landscapes, which means so much to so many. Conservation is happening at pace inside our places too. This year, we're especially grateful for the support of the US-based Royal Oak Foundation that has just donated three million pounds towards vital conservation of our collections. This generous gift will be used to undertake much needed conservation work to improve the condition of over a hundred highly significant works of art, items of historic furniture, books and textiles over the next five years. As I write this, I feel confident that the months ahead will be happier ones. As soon as households are allowed to mix again, I'm sure that many people will choose trust places as settings for much anticipated reunions with friends and close family. What a wonderful prospect that we can offer to the people of these islands. Thank you, Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director General. You can hear more about our new book, The National Trust School of Gardening, in the next track. And later on, you can learn more about Sandylands, the Trust's first stretch of coast in Lincolnshire. Now that summer's here, it's time to wander the pathways and breathe in the scents of a garden in full bloom. Have you ever noticed how each garden has its own special atmosphere? Rebecca Bevan, author of the National Trust School of Gardening, shows you how to bring the spirit of a garden to life. The article is read by Olivia Vinnell. You don't have to be a gardener to appreciate a garden. Any one of us can be moved by a garden's beauty and atmosphere, especially if we're lucky enough to spend time there in fine weather and good company. But have you ever stopped to consider why you love a particular garden, or what the gardeners have done that causes it to affect you so deeply? Each garden, however grand or small, has its own atmosphere and spirit. It might feel inviting, playful, calming or awe-inspiring. Maybe it triggers memories, transports you back through history or takes you to distant lands. The plants can be as rich and textured as an oil painting, yet they live, breathe, grow and change. Gardens have the power to absorb you and they touch all the senses. It is the job of the national trust teams who care for the gardens to figure out what gives each one its unique character or spirit of place. Their understanding helps inform how to maintain the plants and structures, which features to highlight, conserve or restore, and where others can be altered or allowed to recede. These are important decisions in a garden, especially as it transforms over time from the original creator's intention. It's not only the grand and historic gardens that are able to evoke a special spirit. Your own garden, whatever its size, can breathe character too. The plants you choose can create a strong sense of style. The surrounding building materials, whether highly modern or soft and traditional, can enhance them. The way a garden is laid out can entirely change the way you experience it. The idea of spirit of place dates back centuries. The phrase is a translation of the classical Roman expression genius loci, 
which referred to the protective spirit that the Romans believed presided over a place. In the 18th century, poet Alexander Pope called upon this genius to help with the creation of new landscape gardens. Consult the genius of the place in all, he advised in his 1734 Epistle 4, for it paints as you plant and as you work designs. Pope wasn't referring to a mythical deity. Instead, he thought the guiding spirit lay in the landscape and that the hills, vales, views, water and woods could be drawn into a design to make it sing. Today, conservationists use the expression spirit of place to describe the qualities, tangible and intangible, which combine to make a place special. I first learnt about the concept of spirit of place and how the Trust uses it to guide conservation decisions at Mount Stewart in Northern Ireland while I was working as a gardens researcher. The garden there was created by Edith, Lady Londonderry, in the early 20th century. It has many idiosyncratic features, including topiary shaped into mythical Irish figures, a menagerie of carved animals and a Moorish-style Spanish garden. Its sheltered position next to Strangford Loch and mild microclimate make it suitable for a wide range of plants. Lady Londonderry made the most of it, financing plant-gathering trips and ensuring her garden always contained the latest acquisitions. Mount Stewart still feels thrillingly original, and its gardeners continue to seek out new plant varieties to make sure her legacy endures. When I saw Lady Londonderry's garden, I was struck by its individuality and playfulness. It's the kind of garden that is so exhilarating. It's hard to walk calmly around and give everything the attention it deserves. Instead, as you admire one area, you get a glimpse of something else which draws you towards it. It feels like it's in its own world. Gardens like this leave me full of excitement to create something beautiful and unique myself. On my return from Mount Stewart, I re-evaluated my own small plot and wondered what was realistic. I had recently bought my 1920s end of terrace home on the edge of a small town, and the garden had been rather neglected. My first ambitious plans were to terrace the site and divide it up into rooms like a miniature version of an arts and crafts garden. But as I pondered on the space, I began to realize that not only were my ideas expensive and overcomplicated, they would change the character of the garden completely. I realized that if I paid attention to what was special about this site and its surrounding area, it could guide me to develop it more sensitively and bring its own particular spirit to life. I'd initially been drawn to the house by the rather wild garden and rural feel of the hillside it sits upon. The garden reflected its setting, with primroses strewn through the lawn, two cherry trees and mature ivy hiding the fences. If I called in the diggers to flatten the earth, I thought, I would lose much of its essence. Instead, I decided to keep the slope, adding trees and shrubs at the bottom edge to frame the views of the hills beyond. I planted natural-looking bird-friendly native shrubs such as Gilda Rose, Rowan and Spindle, and added an apple tree where the neighbours told me there used to be one. I left most of the lawn as meadow and have been rewarded with five common-spotted orchids. I do have one big border of showy perennials, which I chose for their colour and structure, but I planted it near the house, away from the wilder areas. For anyone making a garden or improving an existing one, I urge you to take time to understand what is unique and special about your space. Try to live a year there 
watching the way the light moves and how different plants perform before making any major changes. Look beyond your boundaries at views you'd like to frame or need to obscure. Are there any cues you can take from the style of local buildings or colours you can echo in the planting? If you're looking to make structural changes, consider your materials carefully. Reuse the best of what you have if possible, or match new materials to fit what is already there. Try not to race ahead, imposing your will on the place, until you have understood what its genius truly is. There's plenty of inspiration around you. For gardens that really make the most of natural features, look no further than some of the 18th century landscape gardens in trust care, such as Stowe in Buckinghamshire, Studley Royal in North Yorkshire, or Stourhead in Wiltshire. With a style made popular by landscape designers such as Lancelot Capability Brown, these gardens favoured wide, open lawns with enclosed woodland walks, vantage points framed by trees, serpentine lakes and glimpses of follies. They take me on a wonderful journey in search of the next view. Today's caretakers of long-established gardens like these have to work out the best way to keep their history alive without being held back by the past. For some gardens, ancient trees and historic border plans are critical to the spirit of place. For others, the planting can be more flexible. Rosie Files is head gardener at London's Ham House. She says, Our philosophy at Ham is that a garden should not be restricted by its historic roots, but inspired by them. Our planting is always evolving to keep the garden's original spirit alive in a way that speaks to today's garden lovers. There has been a kitchen garden at Ham House since the 17th century, and it remains one of the most productive in London today. Rosie's team stay true to the spirit of the historic productive garden, but have used modern organic growing techniques for the last decade to grow more unusual produce, including purple podded peas and roots such as salsify, skirret, and scozinura. In the summer, visitors can buy Ham House vegetable bags and cut flowers. At Packwood House in Warwickshire, the character comes from the property's sense of style. The mansion's last owner, Graham Baron Ash, inherited the 16th century house in 1925 and transformed it to restore much of the Tudor heritage. In the garden, formal elements from the mid-17th century, such as wrought iron gates, square gazebos, level lawns and a raised terrace, sit amongst bursting flower borders added over the years. Head gardener Mick Evans has made the borders even more of a visual feast than in Ash's day. He explains, Packwood's distinctive mingled planting style is largely defined by the use of colour and the way it complements the built elements of the property. In the walled Carolean garden, we group small collections of intensely coloured plants along the length of the borders to draw the eye. In the central borders, we choose flower, leaf and stem colours to harmonise with the house's pinkish-grey render. Elsewhere, the warm terracotta brick of the garden gazebos is set off with hot scarlet, gold and yellow flowers between dark red foliage. With this simple colour grouping rule in mind, the planting can be extended throughout the garden so that nothing will clash, instead embellishing this beautiful historic house. At Monk's House in East Sussex, the garden is far more modest and domestic, with a timeless quality to it. Leonard and Virginia Woolf bought their unassuming cottage in 1919 as an escape from London. 
It was generous and private, watched over by the steeple of the local church. The wolves spent a lot of time in the garden, enlarging it and adding many new features, including ponds, a conservatory, and brick paths built from the ruins of outbuildings. Some areas were turfed over for ease of maintenance following Leonard's death in 1969, but a succession of dedicated tenants helped reinvigorate it. They peeled back vegetation to unearth the structure of the wolf's garden and replanted the borders with their own interpretation of a Bloomsbury-style garden. Today, the garden is in trust care, and gardeners try to give it the feel of a private space, with plants spilling over the paths. It is one of my favourite places, still providing an escape from the world, with Virginia's writing room nestled into a corner of the orchard. At the other end of the scale is the grandeur of the garden at Powys Castle in Powys, which evokes awe and wonder. The garden originates from the 16th century, with dramatic Italianate terraces added a century later. It's thought to be one of the finest surviving examples of a 17th century terraced garden in Britain and includes spectacular herbaceous borders, statues, and an orangery. One of Powys's most famous features is the 300-year-old yew hedge. Over time, the topiary has outgrown its formal shape and ballooned into something even more majestic, adding an organic dimension to the sombre Baroque architecture of the terraces. Lady Violet, Countess of Powys, managed the garden from 1911 to 1929 and intended it to be the best in Wales. Powys's head gardener, David Swanton, says... Lady Violet's ambition for the garden gives me the guidance and inspiration to experiment with new planting. It's what she would have wanted. Elsewhere, trust gardeners work to maintain some of the magic we dream of when we read about lost or secret gardens. Cork Abbey in Derbyshire is gardened gently, with some areas repaired and replanted, and others allowed to get a little shaggy at the edges. The house is preserved as a fading time capsule from a vanished era, but mirroring this in the garden is a challenge, as head gardener Heloise Brooke well knows. A garden cannot be left in aspic, she says. Nature will overrun it entirely, and it will become a mass of bramble, nettles, and self-sown trees. Instead, Heloise tends the flower and vegetable gardens, but leaves the old vinery in evocative ruins, moss on the roofs of garden buildings and flowering weeds colonising the edges of gravel paths. Gardens are all very different and very personal. They don't have to be fashionable or even colourful, and they certainly don't have to be perfect. Next time you visit a trust garden or you're sitting in your own, see if you can identify its spirit. Sit somewhere quiet, look at the views, listen and soak in that garden's essence. What a special thing it is to become part of its layers of history and one of the stories it has to tell. So joining me on the line now is the author, Rebecca Bevan, to tell us about some very special trust gardens and how you might borrow inspiration from them for your own green space. Hello, Becky. Thank you very much for joining us today. So I'd like to start off by asking you about London's Red House, because many of us who live in towns and who have gardens will have been very grateful for them during the lockdowns. Tell us what's special about Red House. So Red House was William Morris's first home 
And he designed it to be a real escape from the city. It was an orchard then. And when the house was built, he asked them to make sure that they chopped down as few trees as possible. He wanted it so that you could open windows at night and have apples sort of fall into the bedroom. And today, the Red House still has that very, very escape from the city kind of feel. The city has grown all around it, but because of the way that there are mature shrubs and trees and the boundaries are really blurred, you still feel like you've escaped into a magical rural world. So would you recommend those of us that are town dwellers cover our walls and fences with trees then? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, most urban dwellers won't have a garden as big as the one at Red House, but some of the same principles apply. So if you absolutely smother your fences and climbers and your house walls too, if you can, you're using the vertical space and you're blurring the edges. So it's not completely clear how big your garden actually is. Speaking of blurring edges, um, I've been to Beatrix Potter's home in the Lake District, Hilltop, which has a lovely cottage garden. Tell us some more about how people might borrow from Beatrix's inspiration. So the cottage garden feel that you get there at Hilltop, that works for so many gardens. And the key really is to be really, really generous with the planting. So narrow paths and big borders and, you know, absolutely pack the borders full of stuff. Let the plants jostle for space and you can have a teepee of branches with sweet peas growing over them and clematis. And again, if you can grow climbers over the front of your house, over the door, that's really lovely and romantic as well. It's beautiful. You can imagine little Peter and his friends hopping around. Absolutely. So climate presumably makes quite a big difference. Does it matter if your garden is warm or cold or whether there's a microclimate? Well, I talk in the book a lot about right plant, right place. And that's really just getting to know your site and your soil before choosing your plants so that you're choosing plants that really thrive. Overbex is one of the National Trust's many wonderful coastal gardens. There's lots you can take from that for your own garden. Yes, it's a microclimate. It's very, very sheltered. So they get away with growing all sorts of things, uh, Mediterranean plants and plants from further afield. But if you like that sort of slightly exotic feel that, that you get there, then there are also lots of quite interesting plants that you can grow, even if you've actually got quite a cold garden. What, what Overbex has got that's really special as well is a view of the sea. So if you're lucky enough to have that, framing it with exotic plants is definitely the way to go. So talk to me about the Tudor garden, the rural garden, for those of our listeners who, who are lucky enough to live in the country. Yes, yeah, so Godolphin in Cornwall is actually one of the National Trust's oldest gardens. It's got layers and layers and layers of history there. There's sort of history of the whole of that part of Cornwall. And the garden, it has this sort of timeless quality, which attracts many people. And it's actually quite an easy style of gardening, if that appeals to you as well, and one that's very good for wildlife. So it's sort of letting plants self-seed. Um, Godolphin, they've got primroses springing up amongst the cobbles, leaving lichen on, on old stone walls to give it a really nice aged rural feel. They've got apple trees and none of the plants are too showy or modern. It's, it's a really lovely, magical garden. That sounds like the one for me, one that is easy and low impact and doesn't involve too much scrubbing of cobblestones. Becky, thank you very much. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thanks, Sally. Bye. We've just heard how gardens can provide the perfect escape. Now let's hear how three trust members and volunteers have taken comfort and found release in nature during the various lockdowns. 
and what they're looking forward to enjoying as restrictions ease. First, Sarah Obina describes how exploring a local woodland provided a welcome break from homeschooling and the pressures of lockdown. Like so many families, we faced some fraught times juggling work with homeschooling and video calls to catch up with family. Our eldest daughter, Mia, had started to become more independent before the pandemic started and would enjoy going skateboarding with her friends. It has been hard on her and on us all. Sometimes we just had to take a deep breath and forget about things like loading the dishwasher or homeschooling tasks for a while. Getting outside would always help us cope with it all. My husband and I are both key workers, so the girls were in school a bit during the lockdowns. On days when we were homeschooling, they'd remind us when they would normally have a break, and it would prompt us to get out. Even just a short break to play in the garden would help. We were lucky to have a small patch of woodland locally that we could explore to get us out of the house. Before the pandemic, we didn't go there much, but during the lockdowns, we were there almost every day. Even when it was raining, we could persuade the girls to go. There's a stream running through the woodland, and the girls loved splashing in it and clearing leaves and twigs so the water flowed better. We made dens there, picked blackberries, cracked the ice when the stream froze over, climbed over and jumped off logs, things we never felt we had time for before. Every year we make a photo book of the things we've done as a family. Last year's book was just full of photos of the four of us on these local walks. We feel lucky to have had outdoor spaces to play in, but are really looking forward to seeing friends and family as restrictions ease. We have family in Norfolk, and we often meet them at Wimpole Estate in Cambridgeshire, a good halfway point. It will be lovely to do that again. For walking group leader Yvonne Witter, not being able to visit the Peak District has been hard, but her local park has become a real haven. Mamtor in the Peak District is such an inspiring place for me. I always used to think that I couldn't get up a hill like that. I didn't have the confidence and thought you needed to be an experienced climber. When I conquered that fear and got to the top, it was amazing. I realised that if you put your mind to something, you can achieve it. I wanted other people to experience that, so I started a walking group before becoming chair for Peak District Mosaic, which supports people from black, Asian and minority ethnic groups to get outside. I love encouraging people and seeing them enjoy being outdoors. Usually, we organise a group trip every month and I've really missed them during the lockdowns. I miss being part of a big group and the energy I get from that. My outdoor time during the lockdowns has been very different, but it has still been a big part of my life. I vow to get out walking every day in my local park and it has been like a therapy for me. I would walk either with a friend or on my own, and it actually helped me to absorb the beauty of nature more. I would take pictures of the daffodils bursting out and listen to the birdsong, and I'd share the pictures and recordings with people I wasn't able to see. It was a great way to keep in touch. The park has been a real haven for me, and being there helped me to cope with not seeing people and the numerous emails and video call meetings while I was working from home. I found it all very challenging, and walking was like my morning medication. I have missed our trips to the Peak District very much, though, and can't wait to get back out there. This summer, I'm also really looking forward to spending more time with my family. I'm hoping to take my seven grandchildren to Island Park in Derbyshire, 
It's such a peaceful place. Wentworth Castle Gardens volunteer Fred Prigmore has found calm and enjoyment in his own garden. I have a 40-year history of working at Wentworth Castle Gardens in South Yorkshire. I was a gardener there for 25 years and started volunteering when I retired. It has been very strange not to be there during the pandemic. Normally I show visitors around the garden, telling them about its history and pointing out my favourite plants, especially the rhododendrons. I've had periods of illness over the last year, and one thing that has brought me huge enjoyment is being outside in my own garden. We have a small patch at home, but it has never looked as beautiful as it did last summer. My wife Jackie says she has never known it to get so much attention. Our daughter Joanne was at home more than usual during lockdowns, so we took up the garden as a project. It was lovely to spend that time outdoors together. The garden is full of my favourites from Wentworth particularly camellias, and we thought we'd dig a new border to plant more in the ground. With garden centres closed, it was difficult to get supplies, but Joanne is a teacher and had lots of seeds that she'd been planning to use for school projects. We planted them and everything came up beautifully. We had busy lizzies and snapdragons, but the begonias were the biggest surprise. Begonia seeds are tiny, so they are quite difficult to plant. We ended up planting them in clumps, and the display was fabulous. We all appreciated the garden last summer, and hardly put the outdoor furniture away we sat outside so much. It was very calming, and really cheered us up to see all this colour. It was beautiful. Plants we'd had for a while that had never come to much before, like bergamot, did really well, and the fuchsias flowered right through the autumn. I'm looking forward to seeing it all in full bloom again this year, and appreciating my own garden, but I'm really going to enjoy getting back to Wentworth, too. It is such a big part of my life. It's so inspiring to hear how nature has helped so many of us through these difficult times. By giving as little as £5, you can help give back to the natural world we all take comfort in. If you'd like to donate, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash nature dash appeal. In honour of our 125th anniversary last year, the National Trust is grateful to have received a generous grant from the US-based Royal Oak Foundation. National Trust member and Royal Oak Secretary Sir David Canadine explains why the American charity has donated £3 million towards vital conservation work at the Trust's conservation studio in Kent. The Royal Oak Foundation is an American charity founded in 1973 by the National Trust. Our mission is to raise awareness and advance the work of the Trust by inspiring support from our members in the United States. Since it was formed, Royal Oak has provided vital funds for some of the Trust's most important conservation projects at places including Stowe in Buckinghamshire, Blickling in Norfolk and the Lake District. Now, in honour of the Trust's 125th anniversary last year, Royal Oak is donating £3 million, or $4 million, to the Trust's conservation studio in Kent to fund collections conservation work over the next five years. As Europe's biggest conservation charity, the National Trust is home to one of the world's largest collections of art and material culture, looking after more than a million objects at over 200 historic places. Many of the works of art, furniture and other objects were commissioned and acquired by past owners and their families over many centuries. These were conscious creations, 
personal statements of taste, patronage, lineage, and social status. Today, the surviving treasures and their historic settings illuminate past experiences. They inspire wonder, creativity, and curiosity. Caring for such a wealth of fine art and heritage objects requires specialist expertise, and the cost of collections conservation is high. The Trust needs to spend millions each year to conserve the most significant objects. Without this additional gift, these treasures would be at risk of further deterioration and damage. Thanks to Royal Oak's support, the Trust will be able to undertake much-needed conservation work and technical research on key objects. It will prioritise objects classed as highly significant across a wide range of materials and types, including paintings, decorative arts, furniture and more. Some of the first items to benefit include a set of nine 17th-century carved, painted and partly gilded scabello chairs from Petworth in West Sussex, and a suit of Japanese samurai armour, one of a set of 27 collected by Charles Paget Wade for his home at Snows Hill Manor in Gloucestershire. The conservation studio opened in 2017 at Knoll in Kent. One of the treasure houses of Britain, Knoll has been home to ten generations of the Sackville family for over 400 years. The studio, housed in a medieval barn, is the first of its kind based at a trust property and which allows visitors to watch conservators at work. In its first two years, the conservation studio focused on objects from Knoll's own remarkable collection. Now it will serve all the trust collections. In recognition of the gift, the studio will be renamed the Royal Oak Foundation Conservation Studio for the next ten years. At first, the trust will use part of the Royal Oak funding to enhance the studio's facilities, providing some essential equipment for paintings conservation and technical research, as well as supporting staff working to document and interpret conserved objects. The list of priorities includes some spectacular items. Oil paintings by Tintoretto and Titian, portraits by Van Dyck, early medieval painted screens, embroideries and tapestries, Chinese wallpapers, and furniture connected to Vanessa Bell and Virginia Woolf of the influential 20th century Bloomsbury group. The gift from Royal Oak represents many years of generous donations from our members and supporters. Every friend to Royal Oak has played a part in this project, especially those who left gifts in their wills. Over the decades, Royal Oak members and friends have raised close to $20 million or £14.4 million to support the Trust, including a $1.25 million or £900,000 donation to help conserve the ballroom at Knoll in 2012. I write these words as Secretary of the Royal Oak Foundation and as a long-term member of the National Trust. I am proud to be associated with this timely and generous transatlantic gift and delighted to have had the chance to contribute. More than ever, in these difficult times, I am happy to reaffirm Royal Oak's commitment and devotion to the work and mission of the Trust. Our members are looking forward to the time when we may get back to the UK to visit its properties again, and especially the conservation studio at Knoll. To find out more about Royal Oak's work and relationship with the Trust, visit royal-oak.org.
After the challenges of the past year, the teams looking after trust properties are busily preparing to welcome visitors back. This year, inspired by much-loved houses like the Beatles' childhood homes in Liverpool and the Birmingham back-to-backs, 70 of our smaller and more unusual places will be offering a new way to explore. The moment you step onto the minibus for the tour of the Beatles' childhood homes in Liverpool, you're transported. Swinging Beatles songs sing out as you soak in the atmosphere of the city streets. By the time you reach the McCartney family home, you feel you're in a past era, a time traveller witnessing the founding years of an artist who will go on to change the course of music history. It's thrillingly exciting. You've got a hard day's night in your head and a smile on your face. Trust places like the Beatles' childhood homes and the Birmingham back-to-backs have always done things differently. They had to, because the nature of the properties means they're small, central, and not set up to receive large numbers of visitors at one time. Rather than viewing such challenges as hindrances, the teams at all three properties have embraced them as an important part of each place's charm, offering intimate, tour-guide-led experiences, which regularly receive glowing visitor feedback. Now, 70 other trust places are going to take a leaf out of their book and overcome the new challenges presented by the recent pandemic to refresh their own experiences for visitors. Sean Blake is the Experiences and Partnerships Curator who is helping the 70 properties to open using the new model. She says, The fact that we had to close all of the Trust's properties during the pandemic has given us a rare opportunity to find new ways to present and share the individual stories of each property in the best way for that place and its visitors. There will not be a one-size-fits-all approach. Instead, teams will respond by trying to make the most of each place, seeking out the best ways to share the stories that make their property unique. Volunteers, with their knowledge and expertise, will have vital roles to play. They are so passionate about sharing the magic of their property with visitors, says Sean. It's this that will make an afternoon out at one of our smaller sites feel like a really exclusive and special experience. As each property opens, its team will listen carefully to visitors and make changes if needed. We look forward to welcoming you back and hearing what you think. National Trust Director of Operations Andy Beer has answered some common questions about trust places and how soon they will be reopening. Most of our parks and gardens are open already and we'll reopen houses as soon as Covid restrictions allow. Some houses will stay shut just a little longer so we can finish off essential repairs or complete our redisplay of their collections. For instance, Sudbury Hall in Derbyshire is being transformed into the Trust's first country house for children where we will put children at the heart of the visit. We will continue to use our booking system while social distancing requires us to carefully manage visitor numbers. When social distancing is behind us, many smaller properties will continue to run booked guided tours as they are an intimate and exciting way to share the stories of each place. We would advise booking these tours to guarantee your spot. We've been hit hard financially by the pandemic, which means we've had to look at how we manage our places. There will be changes to our opening times and days at some of our properties. Large houses will open all year round, but for smaller places you will need to check our website and may well have to book. Please check the property webpage for all the latest details before you visit at nationaltrust.org.uk 
or call our customer service centre on 0344 800 1895. We will also share updates through member emails, so make sure you are signed up at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mynt. Staff and volunteers are really looking forward to welcoming visitors back. Now, find out what experiences you can look forward to at two properties on the Cornish Mining Heritage Coast. Eastpool Mine and Levant Mine and Beam Engine aren't physically huge in size, but their significance is immense. Each has a very different part to play in Cornish mining history. Visitor Operations and Experience Manager James Breslin says, They're about the working-class men and women who worked on the land and deep underground in dangerous conditions in the 19th century. They're also about Cornish ingenuity and the inventions made to lift the tin and copper ore from underground. Levant Mine and Beam Engine is in the St Just Mining District on the very western edge of the rugged Cornwall coast. The buildings cling to the cliffsides and the shafts descend 500 metres underground, with tunnels heading out for nearly a mile under the sea. It is said that on stormy days, the miners could hear the rocks rolling on the seabed above their heads. The spirit at Levant Mine is one of industry, bravery and tragedy. In 1919, 31 men lost their lives when a piece of equipment collapsed. It's a tragedy still strongly felt in the area, with the 2019 centenary commemoration of the incident shaped and driven by the community. Today, Levant is recovering from its industrial past, and slowly but surely, nature is reclaiming the formerly polluted cliffscape. The sea no longer runs red from the mines and, thanks to conservation work, species such as chuffs are thriving. East Pool Mine has a very different setting. It's in the middle of the largest urban area in Cornwall, which has areas of intense deprivation. In the past, when the mine was working, it would have been a centre of the community, says James. We're keen that, as we move out of such a difficult year, East Pool can reclaim that sense of community and become a place for people. At both mines, the new experiences will help each mine to feel more distinct with opportunities to delve into the history of the area. There will be volunteer-led tours to suit a wide range of interests. West Cornwall, for instance, has long been an inspiring location for artists, says James. Some visitors might want to learn more about the engineering of the mines while others might like to hear about wildlife conservation. We can also use the new system of pre-booking to offer autism-friendly days or experiences for other groups who might have particular needs. This gives us the chance to develop visits and tours that will help a wider audience to enjoy all that these places have to offer. To find out more about the fascinating sites featured in this track, visit nationaltrust.org.uk and search for Levant Mine and East Pool Mine. Plans are starting to take shape to transform a former golf course into a rich space for people and nature at the Trust's first stretch of coast in Lincolnshire. This place just lifts my spirits, says Carl Hawke, the Trust's nature conservation advisor for the Midlands and east of England. It's so open and free, 
It's easy to dismiss the Lincolnshire coast because there are no spectacular cliffs, but in fact, it's very special. There's about 16 miles of continuous beach. You just don't get that on the rocky coastline. Despite looking after 780 miles of coast around England, Wales and Northern Ireland, the National Trust had none of Lincolnshire's expansive and wildlife-rich coast in its care. That changed last year when it acquired a former golf course called Sandylands. Located between Sutton-on-Sea and Chapel St. Leonard's, the 1.2-mile stretch extends inland for about 79 acres and is rich with potential to become a thriving new nature reserve. The National Trust had been working in partnership with the Lincolnshire Coastal Country Park and others since 2008 to find a place for nature along this stretch of coast. The intention was always to integrate this new nature reserve into the park's existing 8,650 acres. Carl explains, That was a priority for the partnership, so when the opportunity came up at Sandylands, we were ready for it. The partnership had identified a white spot, an area with scant wildlife along the Lincolnshire coastline caused by lack of suitable habitat. Whereas the Humber estuary to the north and the Wash to the south both teem with wildfowl, there was a missing piece in the middle due to an absence of dune systems and wetland. The purchase of the old golf course within the white spot provided the opportunity to change all that. Carl says, it meant we would be able to create a year-round destination where people could come and enjoy wildlife. But to do that, we would have to put some wildlife back on the map. The east coast of England, particularly as Lincolnshire leads into Yorkshire, is an important route for migrating birds. Known as the East Coast Flyway, in summer huge numbers of birds stop off here to rest and refuel before continuing their journey to breeding grounds, then repeat the trip in reverse in winter. The land at Sandylands, formerly frequented by golfers and rabbits, has the potential to become a stopping-off place for wading birds, terns and gulls in winter, and breeding warblers and marsh harriers, among others, in summer. The purchase of Sandylands was possible thanks to a generous donation from a supporter, who asked for the money to be spent in Lincolnshire, and funds from the National Trust's Neptune Coastline Campaign, which began in 1965, and which has financed much of the Trust's coastal work since then. In 2012, the Trust used Neptune funds to protect another significant coastal stretch, 0.8 miles of the White Cliffs of Dover. A £1 million fundraising campaign in 2017 also resulted in a further 172 acres here. Altogether, the Trust has six miles of the White Cliffs in its care. Although the two sites are very different, the White Cliffs are chalk downland above cliffs, whereas Sandylands is low-lying dune systems and wetland, the principles of repairing wildlife depletion caused by the effects of human intervention and creating new habitats are paramount concerns in both. The proposed development of the site at Sandylands, including the building of a new visitor centre following the demolition of the old clubhouse, boardwalks and hides, will be boosted by a share of a stronger towns fund through a bid made by East Lindsay District Council. Since the site was acquired, the lockdowns have prevented the habitat creation work from getting started. However, the delays have given Carl and his colleagues time to understand which species are already there and to plan for the future. 
Sandylands lies between a concrete sea defence erected after the flood of 1953 swept eight miles inland and a medieval earth bank that, confusingly, is called the Roman Bank. Its previous life as a golf course has, surprisingly, worked to its advantage. Carl says, The land is less intensively managed than the deep, ploughed farmland that surrounds it. Deep ploughing destroys soil. The greens on the golf course might have been mowed and treated with weed killer, but the land around them is perfectly respectable grassland. We haven't done anything to it yet, and wildlife is already returning. Kirsty James, general manager for South Nottinghamshire and North Lincolnshire, has also noticed encouraging signs of bird life in the area. She says, Local bird watchers have recorded the usual suspects, such as blackbirds, robins and dunnocks, and there have been a number of passage migrants, birds that stop off in the UK en route to breeding sites. These include wheat ear and redstart, as well as waders such as black-tailed godwit, wimbrel, and the very rare great snipe. Is there, in that case, a temptation to leave the land alone and simply let nature return? Carl says, if we did nothing, we would end up with scrubby grassland and nothing else. This has a value in its own right, but we wanted to do something more to help connect people to nature, as well as create the best opportunities for wildlife. Something more means creating dunes and their corresponding slacks, valleys between dunes, and establishing a wetland area at the southern end of the site where water already accumulates. Carl says, This will probably be a mixture of reed bed, open water and wet grassland to attract migrating birds to refuel. Visitors will be able to watch the birds from hides. We really want people to be able to get as close as possible to the birds without disturbing them. When the new habitats have bedded in, what can visitors expect to see? Carl continues, You tend to find that all you need to do is just add water and wildlife will come. This includes wildflowers with swaying purple reed beds fringing what were once barren greens and bunkers and, potentially, newly introduced species such as blue iris and the greater water parsnip flourishing in shallower waters. Once established, we hope the wetlands, ponds and ditches will benefit water voles, grass snakes and even great crested newts, as well as a wide range of breeding and migrant birds. There should always be something to see year-round. The natural world has a wonderful ability to boost well-being, with its life-affirming, mood-enhancing benefits proving so important for so many of us during lockdown. Kirsty says, We want to support the well-being of local people and visitors by bringing them closer to nature, just as soon as that's permitted, and the best way to do that is to look after places like Sandylands, create priority habitat for wildlife, and welcome people in. We want the community to feel involved in the direction for the site. We've already got a list of keen volunteers. The new visitor building at Sandylands will complement its two spectacular neighbours, the North Sea Observatory at Chapel Point, an impressive gateway to the coastal country park, and further south, the Visitor Centre at Gibraltar Point National Nature Reserve, beyond Skegness, managed by Lincolnshire Wildlife Trust. Carl says, That will make three amazing visitor destinations along this stretch of coast. The Lincolnshire coast is indeed a precious place, 
and this stretch will become more so as time, nature, and careful stewardship work their magic at Sandylands. We hope you've enjoyed hearing about the Trust's plans to protect this important coastal habitat. To support this and other wildlife conservation projects run by the Trust, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash nature dash appeal. Now, in An Object I Love, we ask a trust expert to tell us about an item in our collections that they have a personal connection with. Neil Watt, Collections and House Manager, explains what a portrait of Bernard Ward reveals and conceals about Castle Ward in County Down. When I was a young boy, a formidable yet magical lady showed me around the local big house. I was in awe. She was the last in her family line and lived in the almost derelict house, completely committed to sharing her history and home. I returned to this house after university for my first job as a house manager, and she taught me that I must use both my head and my hands to be successful. I was inspired by her, and I've brought a lot of what she taught me to Castle Ward, where I now live and work. Castle Ward was built in the 1760s by the 18th-century Irish gentleman and politician Bernard Ward, later the first Viscount Bangor. Ward was so delighted with his grand new family seat that he commissioned society artist Francis Coates to paint an oil portrait of him holding the architectural drawings. But the portrait only tells half the story of the creation of the castle, and, as someone who has always had a nose for hidden history, I'm drawn to the painting not only for what it shows, but also for what it conceals. Castle Ward was divided completely in half by two fashionable Georgian architectural styles, the classical and the Gothic, yet the drawing Ward is holding only shows designs for a classical house. Castle Ward's unique fusion of styles is thought to have come from Bernard's acrimonious marriage to his wife, Lady Anne Bly. It seems that the determined Anne refused to give way to Bernard's preferred classical-style house. It is thought that Anne liked the Gothic and had discerning tastes. Historic letters show she placed orders for her preferred style of furnishings, such as chinoiserie and painted glass. It has long been thought that Bernard and Anne compromised by dividing the house in half so they could each find creative expression. The couple separated shortly after it was completed. When I first saw the portrait of Bernard, I felt overwhelmed by the connection between the object, the house, and the history. It filled my heart to think about Bernard's contribution to this incredible place. But there is no surviving portrait of Lady Anne in Castle Ward's collection, which seems a grave omission. In the same way that Bernard's plans only tell half the story of the house, his portrait only tells part of its owner's story. The absence of this mysterious woman, who played such an important role in the castle's construction but whose face is not represented on its walls, piques my curiosity whenever I look at the portrait of Bernard. I often think the lack of a portrait made Lady Anne a sidelined figure. Conscious that her story had become something of a myth, I recently added a short biography of her to the Trust website. I try to give particular space to hidden histories like Lady Anne's. 
Growing up gay in rural Northern Ireland, my own story remained hidden for some time. Researching Anne's story, we discovered that she had loved a woman prior to her marriage with Bernard, which of course struck a chord with me. I want to hear Bernard's story, but I also want to hear Anne's. Her story could mean a lot to a young boy or girl who visits and maybe help them to find their own voice. I often wonder if there is a companion portrait of Anne, which has survived somewhere, where she holds the plans for the Gothic castle ward in her hand. Thank you, Neil, for shedding light on such a compelling story. Go to nationaltrustcollections.org.uk to find out more. And now it's time to hear from you. First up is a letter from Viv Todd from Worcestershire, who says, I wanted to say how much I appreciated the arrival of the latest magazine and 2021 handbook. My 92-year-old mother is in a care home, and with visitors curtailed due to the pandemic, the arrival of the colourful National Trust package was a highlight for her. A trust member of 40 years, she has many happy memories of visits all over the UK with my late father, and browsing through the handbook is a perfect way for her to reminisce. I'm so glad that this simple joy is still available to her. My family, too, looks forward to making the most of our own life membership again. Marcus Trinick from Cornwall reminisces about a memorable first visit to Castle Drogo many years ago. I am pleased to see that Castle Drogo has had some loving care. It is an unlikely apparition in the Devon countryside. My father negotiated the transfer of the castle to the trust and took me along with him on his first visit to see the owner, Mr. Drew. As we approached the castle, we saw a speck on one of the enormous walls. On drawing nearer, the speck became a man, repointing part of the wall with minimal safety gear. The man was Mr. Drew. It was then that we realised he was in dire need of the trust. Barbara Matthewson from Hertfordshire tells us how she can't get enough of Sutton Hoo. I saw the online premiere of the Netflix film The Dig earlier this year, thanks to winning tickets in a draw on the members area of the Trust's website. It had the added bonus of a very good recorded discussion with the producer and some of the actors. I've been to Sutton Hoo three times now. On one visit, before the pandemic of course, there was a special event with reenactors and craftspeople. My friend and I enjoyed learning about Anglo-Saxon life and trying our hand at some of it. We came across a group of cheerful men relaxing after their day of helping. They had an expensive replica of the Sutton Hoo helmet, which they kindly let us try on. I look forward to visiting the redeveloped site for yet another memorable day. Beth Scott and Matt Taylor of Manchester have been making the most of their young person memberships. On a Cornish holiday in 2018, we discovered the Trust's young person memberships. We both decided to become members and have since formed the tradition to visit Dunham Massey every July for my birthday and Quarry Bank every December for Matt's. We plan our UK breaks around visiting new Trust places on our journeys and can't wait to tick off more in the future. And finally, we hear from John Greenshields, a volunteer from Somerset, who's been helping with fundraising and restoration efforts at Wellington Monument. John Greenshields is a volunteer at Wellington Monument in Somerset, where he's been helping with fundraising and restoration efforts. The Wellington Monument is a memorial to people who lost their lives in battle, 
and a local landmark that you can see from the M5. The monument is currently being restored to its former glory, following a huge fundraising effort, and the project is now almost complete. My farm backs onto the monument, and around eight years ago I decided to start litter-picking at the Quartz Moor car park. I met someone from the Trust, who encouraged me to register as a volunteer. Once I started, I wanted to do more. There's now a group of volunteers working hard to keep the monument in good order and help with fundraising work. I was lucky enough to be allowed to go up to the top of the scaffolding during restoration works. I've helped take donations for stones from the top of the monument which couldn't be reused in the restoration. I've heard of people using them as water features or building them into fireplaces. I run tree listening sessions here too. When people put headphones on, they're amazed at how loud the rumbles are as water travels up a tree. Currently, I'm restoring the monument's gun carriage. I've been learning how gun carriages were built and finding out about this one's history. I feel a real affinity with the monument. Once guidelines allow, if you'd like to get involved in volunteering, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash volunteer. Receiving and reading your messages is a real highlight for the National Trust magazine team, so thank you to everyone who's contacted us. Please continue to stay in touch. You can write to us at the editor, National Trust magazine, Helis, Kemble Drive, Swindon, Wiltshire, SN2, 2NA. Email magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. Contact the Trust on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash nationaltrust or on Instagram and Twitter using at National Trust. We hope you're able to start getting out as the days lengthen. There are plenty of trust places where you can delight in the scent of summer blooms. From buttercups to banana plants, here are just some of the gardens and outdoor spaces you can enjoy. For the latest on the coronavirus restrictions, please make sure that you check individual property websites the National Trust app, or call the property before you visit. From May, 300 million buttercups cover the ground in a cheerful carpet of yellow at Hatfield Forest in Essex. Stroll along the Golden Boots Trail or find a perfect spot for a picnic. Butter optional. Drink in the dreamy purples of Wisteria Floribunda over the Avery Terrace at Powys Castle and Garden. Wisteria is said to symbolise long life, and at 180 years old, Powys's beautiful climber lives up to the hype. You might expect historic apple trees, rhubarb and lettuce in Nostal's kitchen garden, but would it surprise you to find bananas growing in West Yorkshire? Enjoy them flowering over the summer. If orchids are your passion, there are several varieties flourishing on the limestone pastures at Sizer in Cumbria, including early purple, butterfly and common spotted orchids. At Seton Delaval Hall in Northumberland, you can stroll under the laburnum arch, wander past sweet-scented azaleas and dazzling tulips, and explore the newly opened Southeast Garden. At Anglesey Abbey in Cambridgeshire, the roses are in full bloom in the traditional English rose garden from June. With 40 varieties to admire, each with their own colour and scent, you'll be hard-pressed to choose a favourite. This September, restrictions permitting, England's largest festival of history and culture is set to open its doors again, both in person and online. Heritage Open Days celebrates local history and culture for everyone to enjoy. 
It's a series of free events run by local organisations and individuals. Each September, places in England that usually charge for entry or are closed to the public welcome visitors to a variety of events, talks and tours. It's a chance to explore special places, from stately homes to factories and forests. Heritage Open Days is coordinated by the Trust nationally, with support from players of People's Postcode Lottery. When Heritage Open Days celebrated 25 years of opening up history and culture to visitors in 2019, there was no way of knowing how different the 2020 event would look. Due to coronavirus restrictions, we had to move many planned events online, explains project manager Andrew Henderson. We ended up with six times as many virtual as in-person visits. It gave people from all over the UK and internationally the chance to take part. It also offered an opportunity for people who might have had difficulty accessing some of these special places to catch a glimpse of what they had to offer. Among the places which had to move online for 2020 were the Clock Tower at Royal Holloway, University of London. Not even the curator had been up the ladder before, but videoing a tour for us meant we could all climb it, says Andrew. I loved seeing into the clock's workings. Liscard Railway Station signal box in Cornwall, meanwhile, is on a busy line and unsafe to open to visitors. A new film brought viewers closer to the action as staff signalled a train through the section. For 2021, restrictions permitting, Heritage Open Days will see the return of in-person events from the 10th to the 19th of September, while continuing to build on last year's digital successes. The theme is Edible England, so expect plenty of foodie events exploring our culinary landscape. To find out more about Heritage Open Days, please visit heritageopendays.org.uk. Well, that's all from us this summer issue. I hope you've enjoyed it, and do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. The National Trust magazine Summer 2021 was presented by me, Sally Palmer. The readers in this edition were Neka Akoya, Glenn McCready and Olivia Vinnell. It was produced for National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding, and all items are copyright. CDs of this audio edition are available to visually impaired members of the National Trust and are distributed by the RNIB. If you know of anyone who is eligible and would like to receive them, please call the RNIB on 01733 375 370, or you can write, enclosing the membership number, to Sales and Operations, RNIB, Midgate House, Midgate, Peterborough, PE11TN. This audio magazine is also available to download or stream as a podcast. You can access this and previous issues free of charge from all major podcast providers. For more information, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us for the next audio issue of National Trust magazine.